Welcome to the London Writing Guy podcast. That intro, as ever, was brought to you by Money underscore Beats on Instagram. So head over to his Instagram page to check out more of where that came from. That's M-U-N-N-Y underscore Beats. This is my conversation with Sharanjeet Singh. Sharanjeet is the founder of the not-for-profit organization, The Rocky. The Rocky work with Punjabi communities to reshape approaches to mental health. They're quite specific in that they use a non-clinical but community-centered approach. Sharanjeet founded Draki after his own personal experiences at university. We talk a little bit about that and the origin of the charity and why he set it up in the first place. We talk about why mental health is not discussed as openly as it should be within Punjabi communities. We talk a little bit about the amazing initiatives that Draki have put on during their lifetime. But more importantly for me, I was able to ask Sharanjeet a little bit more about their techniques and how they get people to open up and how they get people to discuss the topic of mental health when we all know it's such a taboo subject uh, when it comes to the South Asian community. There's so much more that was discussed in this conversation, so have a listen. It was a conversation I've wanted to do for a while and I've had on my list of uh, people to get in touch with. So I'm so glad I got to do this with Sharanjeet. Their work is amazing. The initiatives they have are innovative and progressive. Everything that Sharanjeet says and does feels like it comes from a place of absolute warmth and belief. So it was an honor to get to speak to him. Remember, the written version of this conversation is available on www.londonwritingguide.com. If you do enjoy the conversation and if you have enjoyed previous conversations, please do leave a review or a rating wherever you listen to or get your podcasts. Also, make sure you're subscribed or following wherever you get your podcasts to stay in touch and up to date with any new episodes and content. The Instagram account is also there for you to follow to keep up to date. But for now, I'll leave you with this. I think the work you guys do is unbelievable. Um, and you've put in, by the looks of it, by the sounds of it, and obviously, evidently, you've put in some an immense amount of work into what you guys do. And so it's a brilliant story to be able to tell. And actually, it's an honor for me to be able to speak to you just because of I think it's the mental health aspect of things in life is such a big thing, but also in that community, it's just such a hidden uh, mm. aspect of things. It has such a stigma, and I think breaking that stigma is also important. And you can't do that without having conversation, right? So, um, but yeah, um, thank you for doing this, Sharon Jeeth. Um, I think there's lots of places we could start, but I mean, ultimately, I want you to just kind of start with you telling me a little bit about what Draki do, how you came about. Um, I know the kind of, I, I know largely uh, what you're about, but I want to hear it in your own words and get you to give me kind of your own your own take on things. Um, so yeah, let's start there. Let's start kind of how and why Draki came about. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and thank you so much for inviting me to discuss. You know, I think it's always, and for your kind words about Draki, really, really appreciate it. Because when you're when you're in it, you never know the impact it's having. <laughs> so um, it's always I always appreciate that. Um, so Draki is a not-for-profit organisation that works with Punjabi communities to reshape approaches to mental health. 
Uh, I founded Tarakki in October 2017, uh, following my experiences of mental health challenges. Um, at a time where so much was changing in my life, living in a new place, um, being at university, having moved away from home, being the first in my family to leave the city to go to university. You know, I was very lucky to access the support I did when I did. Um, and I recognized that there were plenty of folks within Punjabi communities, the communities I've been surrounded by growing up, who were going through similar challenges, but weren't as lucky to access support. And just a bit more on that background, you know, for me, the story all begins in Hansworth in Birmingham. That's where I was born. That's where I was raised, surrounded by people from different parts of the world, whether that's South Asia, whether that's the Caribbean, whether that's East Africa, whether that is Central and Eastern Europe. It's people from all over the place in an amazing amalgamation of communities, cultures, cuisine. But for me, the main difficulty started when I kind of went to university, as I mentioned, and being someone who stuck out like a sore thumb, it wasn't an easy experience. Many people go through similar experiences. It's never, it's never the, the, the smoothest transition. But isolating myself more and more, questioning myself deeply who I was and not being able to resolve that really caused me some different challenges. And it led to me pushing myself away from people, not connecting with friends and family in the same way. And it led to me creating almost two versions of myself, you know, the, the university me and the home me. And basically the mismanagement of that led to difficulties around anxiety, body image, self-esteem, all these different kinds of things. But I was very lucky because I, one day I spoke to one of my housemates about some of the challenges I was experiencing. And they listened and they reflected back some of the experiences they'd had. And importantly, we were able to connect in that moment as equals. We were able to be each other without feeling ashamed, without feeling guilty, without feeling like we had to hide parts of ourselves. And for me, that discussion and the process and the experiences that followed, just getting to know my housemates more, connecting as people, connecting as friends, connecting as siblings, um, that was absolutely essential for me at that time and I recognized that there are plenty of folks in our communities more broadly who are experiencing similar kinds of challenges but didn't have access to the support that they needed at that time so that's that's a that's the kind of like uh, the pathway within, within which Traki started and you know the, the kind of push that we had initially uh, to go from you know theory to action was because there was a lot of discussion around men's mental health, particularly in the media in the UK. Um, you know, 2016, 2017, it was it was getting a lot of media traction. And I remember, you know, celebrities talking about mental health, men's mental health and whatnot. But I remember also connecting with relatives who were men and, you know, would talk about mental health and, you know, the communications coming through the media weren't getting through to them at all. And I noticed there was this gap and ultimately, the men in our communities weren't represented in those conversations. And so there was something that was stopping the conversation from actually happening and stopping our communities moving forward around this topic. And so that was the push. That was the kind of action push. Um, and since then, we've developed uh, into uh, an organization that focuses on four levers of change. 
Um, so we look at awareness, which is like the first step. Education, which is building on awareness. Application, so actually applying our skills. Uh, and then research as well. So they're the kind of four levers of change we focus on. Um, and we work with our communities in, in different ways, trying to build collaboration, build capacity, run projects, um, and ultimately trying to you know, uh, work towards a world where people in our communities can get the help they need um, at the time that works for them in the way that works for them. That's, it's really interesting. You talk about the commu- our communities getting the help they need. Um, uh, something I've been thinking about quite a lot is recently is our community having the support groups and the support networks around them in their local areas and whether there's enough of them. And I don't necessarily see enough of those support groups that are tailored to our communities, right? Um, and I guess what you're doing is is giving people that access and giving people that knowledge that comes from our communities um, and, the, and the wider demographics and, and the diaspora that understand it um, from that perspective, um, which is which I think is great. So what is your opinion on on the support groups that are out there for our community then? Because I think you'd agree that there isn't enough help for our communities. And so like, how can there be more of that? So it's a really good question. Um, and, you know, talking about support groups, peer support, and just understanding it a bit more broadly, basically, it's an approach to supporting people with their mental health and well-being. It's a, it's a, it's not a clinical approach, which means that it you know it's not being administered by you know a, a kind of professional in a very specific healthcare context. But for me, it's an incredibly important approach because it can be taken forward by anyone and everyone, and ultimately, it's about nurturing genuine and connective relationships um, between people, um, you know, building those that trust, building that authenticity and building that space to talk openly. And for me, that, that in reality, they should be fundamental aspects of what make us human. Uh, and these, these, are, these are things that should be existent in our, in, in our relationships anyway. But, you know, somewhere down the line, uh, we forgot uh, a lot of these, a lot of these skills. So with regards to kind of peer support groups, so you know, we've been running uh, support groups for uh, Punjabi men, Punjabi women. We help set up ones for Punjabi LGBTQ plus folks because we recognized the importance and also the power of people and also recognize the massive strain that our health and social care system is under. And yes, there are people who absolutely might benefit from talking therapies. They might benefit from medication. They might benefit from other kinds of interventions. But also there's some folks who might benefit from peer support. And so we want to be able to kind of balance what people are able to offer, depending on what resonates with them the most. Um, You get the the challenge with peer support um, and delivering peer support is that people need to connect with the offering. Um, And one of the ways people can potentially connect is either a convergent interest. So maybe it's a peer support group for, um, you know, uh, like kind of, Younger folks who play cricket, it might be a peer support group for um, people who live in a particular area. Uh, but the way that we try and kind of converge that interest is by saying that this is a peer support group for Punjabi men. And so people who connect with that will look at it and say, actually, maybe this is something for me. So we started running our groups probably about four years ago. Uh, pre-pandemic, they were happening in person in London and Birmingham once a month. Uh, during the pandemic, we moved everything online. 
And now we've taken a slightly different approach where we've actually developed a Punjabi men's peer support facilitation training, uh, which is a 12 session long training, which is designed to actually work with Punjabi men and train them as peer support facilitators. And then what we do is help them to go and deliver within their communities. And so that's our kind of method to scaling at the moment. And we've delivered that, well, we've developed the curriculum and we have delivered that with two partner organizations, um, one based in the Midlands and one based in Yorkshire. And so there'll be two more groups for Punjabi men that are starting in the next in the next month or so. And so it's just a way of us being able to kind of take forward this conversation uh, in a sustainable way uh, and also in a way that is rooted locally because I recognize that yes, you know, I might be able to connect automatically with Punjabi folks from like Birmingham, Handsworth or whatever, but I know that actually experiences can differ quite significantly in different parts of the country and also in different parts and different types of experiences. And so actually we can provide the space, we can help with the training, we can help with the capacity building, and then people can drive this change forward themselves. And so we'll actually be looking for um, you know, new partner organizations we're going to be working with over the next few um, over the next six months or so. And ultimately, we want to build that capacity so that they can go and then deliver. That's the, one of the most amazing things, isn't it, about, you say, different experiences in, in different localities and different regions. And I think on a on a, a micro scale, that probably even magnifies, like you said, and you actually said this earlier, You there were two versions of yourself, one version at home, one version at university, right? So, And, and there was a mismanagement there. Um, and so, yeah, my point there, I guess, is a little bit about how our communities and how even you and I, we might be similar in terms of heritage and culture and religion and things like that. But the way we live our lives is so different to each other because of, our, say, our household environment, our, our work environment, our university environment. Um, and actually, I just want to ask you a quick question about that. Just going back to the idea of you mismanaging perhaps those two versions of yourself. What I guess when you're at university or when you're at home, what do you identify as that mismanagement? What what was the crux of that, I guess? So for me, it was very much about my relationship with faith. So my relationship with Sikhi. Um, and within the home context, you know, uh, my family are kind of all Amratari Sikhs. And um, so am I as well. And kind of connecting to Sikhi in that way at home and then being so far away at uni was like, for me, the biggest thing that caused a divide. Um, because I didn't have kind of the Sangat around me, the, the community and congregation around me. I didn't have, um, you know, the similar kind of routine, similar kind of practices as I did at home that would help me reflect and help me um, kind of um, balance myself. And so there was this whole, uh, there was this whole challenge around what it meant to be me, what it meant to be sick at home, and then also what it meant to be me and what it meant to be a sick at university. Um, and so that was the kind of crux at the at the base of um, that that divide for me. That's very interesting. What was your own solution to that? So I guess it was about there was a time where definitely I kind of moved away in different ways from my sicky, and you know that's the time I look back on and I'm like, oh my god, why did I do that? But it was a for me it was an important point of growth because actually going away made me realise what I had, um, and so. You know, I remember at the beginning of my time at uni, um, I, all I wanted to do was fit in. Um, I, I didn't want to stand out negatively. I didn't want to kind of be someone others could kind of identify as, as, as being really, really different. 
And so, you know, I kind of moved away from my Sakina in, in a couple of different ways. Um, but later in my experiences of university, after meeting people who uh, kind of were very confident in themselves, confident in who they were, after supporting myself and talking about my own challenges, I actually developed more of a confidence in my my, my genuine self. And, and that was, you know, um, reconnecting with Sikhi in a way that um, is is just is kind of, you know, is personal to me. Mm. Um, and that was that was a really important feature of that. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's connections tends to be a, a, a key word, an important word, I think, in all of these conversations, because I think I think the word connection comes up in a lot of the initiatives that you guys have put on and, and done over time. And you mentioned the idea of the power of people and how pe- the people that you're training are supporting each other and the power of people that come together. Um, that feels like quite a core key concept. Um, I think there's there are studies to suggest that the more connections and the, the more real uh, connections you have with the people around you, I think it improves life expectancy and, and happiness as well. Is that something that you've tried to incorporate the idea of connection and connecting people? Is that an intentional aspect that you've tried to incorporate into your, into the initiatives uh, that, that you guys, that you guys have built? Ultimately, you know, we see conversations and action around mental health as a force for unification as a force for connection, as a force for developing compassion, empathy, and ultimately a love towards our fellow people, right? And so whilst um, we can kind of talk about different topics that may feel very divisive, um, for me, mental health is a way of of, of bringing things together. Um, And ultimately, uh, to be able to kind of connect with your own mental health and your own mental well-being and connect with other people, it requires a realization of humanness. Mm. Um, And at the base of our work, it's about rekindling and reconnecting with that sense of shared humanity. Yes, shared experiences may be different, but there is a sense of shared humanity. Um, and while we live in a way that is, you know, that can that can make that really hard, uh, we are just trying to kind of bring that back together in our work. And it's almost like an undercurrent um, to our work as well, because, you know, I think it's a, if if we were to go out and say, look, we're trying to build a sense of humanity, a sense of shared understanding, you know, as a as a kind of comms piece, you know, you're not going to get very far with that. But if you're able to kind of bake it in uh, to whichever projects and approaches that you're doing, whether it's peer support, whether it is developing resources, whether it is sharing experiences and sharing testimonials, um, we want to do it in a way that makes people look, makes people connect and makes people appreciate. Um, and this is what makes it so hard to measure impact sometimes because we don't know what someone does or the conversations they have once they've looked at some of our resources or once they've connected with us online. Um, and so, you know, those moments where we can speak to people and, and they say to us, actually, you know, I was looking through this resource with a relative and I was doing this with someone else, you know, they're, they're, they're the, that's the gold dust. Um, and I think it's, I think it's awesome that, you know, we're presented with that gold dust at random points because it keeps us going. You know, if people were to continuously say to me, oh yeah, look, this is what's going, what's working really, really well. I get, you know, if I got massive bits of data on what was working well, it, that's a bit of an indication, but I like how every every few weeks there's someone who tells me a different way that they've benefited from Turkey because it gives me a bit of a, a boost and it gives me a sense of, okay, great. All right, let's, let's focus on what's coming next. That's That's great because it's, that's that's almost the reward, isn't it? 
it's a reward for what you're all the work you're putting in and you're getting that reward back in actual real stories and yeah it's it's those real life situations those real life examples that's really great to hear um you're obviously having all of these conversations with people in the community you're you're you know the initiatives that are going out are, are the target demographic is obviously very specific and it's a it's a demographic and a community that has historically or, or culturally not really talked about the mental health side of things as I mean, we all well know that it, there's a stigma attached to mental health within um, the Punjabi community or community or all of our communities. Um, where do you think that stigma arises from? So I think it's really important to think about stigma as well as st- stigma as an obstacle or a blocker. But stigma also exists alongside obstacles in society and also obstacles in our systems. So it's really interesting because stigma is often used, it absolutely exists within our communities, there's no doubting that, but it's often the most spoken about thing uh, to explain why people might experience particularly bad mental health challenges. People use it as a way to like distract from issues within healthcare systems, issues within uh, people's other experiences, whether that's around racism, whether that's around other forms of discrimination. Um, and so what I always say to folks is be careful how we talk about or just make sure that we talk about stigma as well as other obstacles as well. Um, because I've seen it firsthand that stigma is often used as a way to put blame back onto communities. So, you know, we might say, oh, yeah, you know, um, and I'm sure you've I'm sure you've seen it in the in the in the kind of sports space. Right. It's when people say, oh, yeah, but they don't want um, they don't want young people to go into sport. They want young people to do this and that. So actually, there's a lot of other obstacles and blockers <laughs> that exist. So it's exactly the same um, with mental health and the kind of stigma conversation, uh, where stigma is absolutely a part of it. But also, there are systems that just don't work. <laughs> and also, there are other experiences that will make these, these conversations particularly difficult. Um, but in kind of circling back to stigma, um, I think particularly with our work with Punjabi men, um, you know, stigma really comes from people's understanding of masculinity, um, their understanding of, you know, what it is acceptable and unacceptable to talk about, to present with, uh, to kind of highlight. And and unfortunately, we see uh, a connotation between mental health challenges and vulnerability. Um, And ultimately, vulnerability is seen as like a display of emotion or quote unquote weakness that is the antithesis of you know being being a man right um and so what we find is it takes a bit of unlearning to connect vulnerability with strength rather than with weakness um and actually recognizing that talking about difficulties talking about when you need help is a sign of strength rather than a signal of weakness um and so we see a lot of stuff um around kind of the the stigma that's developed through masculinity. And this is across different communities as well, but the way it presents itself can be different. So just looking at Punjabi communities and particularly Punjabi men, um, you know, during during the colonial era, era, Punjabis were labeled as kind of a martial race, right? And so they were largely recruited into colonial armies. Uh, They were treated very differently to other populations of the subcontinent. And they were actually in some ways, because they're in the army, there were certain privileges that they enjoyed um, compared to other folks uh, who are in different types of roles. 
and we know that uh, within a kind of army context uh, there is often a stiff upper lip uh, approach to different things you know you might experience these difficulties you might experience that but you know what just just kind of just get on with it type thing very very stoic and very very um, kind of traditional approach and what we see is that is sometimes then reflected in how we talk about uh, mental health as well and you might see certain similar tropes similar uh, kind of motifs and imagery used as well um, so that's one way you get the kind of cultural and uh, the cultural manifestation of masculinity as well um, I think the other one alongside masculinity I want to quickly touch on is the impact of migration uh, because uh, a comment that I've heard a fair amount is you know you know so many people experiencing mental health challenges now but you know when their parents or grandparents moved to um, another country uh, you know they worked for seven days a week and did x y and z and they never complained and so there's this kind of comparison between the experiences of folks now and the experiences of of those who kind of built the foundations freely um, and I think the two challenges with that is firstly it it compares two times and considers them as the same um, the challenges and the obstacles we have now are different to the challenges and obstacles 50 years ago. And the second one, it also assumes that none of the older generation experienced these, these challenges themselves. Um, and I think that's the, that's the most interesting one because, you know, I've connected with many people, many people uh, within older generations who are absolutely amazing and share lots of, lots of love and lots of wisdom. And I've connected with others who absolutely have kind of, repressed other kind of challenges they've experienced and that is that now comes forward in how they treat people around them um, and so I think you know there's a couple of these different bits of stigma that we encounter uh, whether it's around masculinities whether it's around migration um, but it's just all about how it manifests itself culturally it, you're absolutely right it definitely impacts or has impacted the older generation and um you talked about unlearning certain aspects have you gotten people around you or the, the people that you're delivering this work to have you gotten them to open up or unlearn so it's a really good question and it's about fundamentally recognizing that there isn't a teacher or a student in this discussion everyone's a learner everyone's a teacher and when we're actually taking or facilitating a process of like critiquing or unlearning and whatnot um, it's about having fundamental respect for the person who you're speaking with um, because we know and I've, I've experienced and seen this myself if you're speaking with someone who's displaying kind of challenging or you know harmful behaviors and you're perceived as lecturing them on what they're doing is is wrong um, that can actually lead to an adverse effect where it might just kind of double lead to them doubling down on those behaviors and so when we have discussions around unlearning and especially discussions around masculinities we just ask questions you know we ask questions and people will come up with responses and they will share and they will you know answer those questions together um you know we don't want to be in a position where we are preaching or we are lecturing folks or we're saying actually this is how you need to do things all we want to do is ask Oh, how we is is this working for us? Is this working for us? Is this serving ourselves, our communities, our society more widely? If so, you know, great. Let's let's unpack that a bit. If not, all right. How can we do things differently? Yeah. And so, really, it's about sharing tools with people so that they can then unpick and unpack, unlearn and relearn, and 
you know, rebuild those foundations in a way that works for them. And unfortunately, it's it's a lot harder nowadays to give that time because that process takes time um, and it can it can lead to, you know, we kind of want a quick fix automatically. And unfortunately, you know, behavior change or learned behavior takes generations to develop. You know, you're speaking to middle age if you're speaking to middle-aged guys, there's you know, 40, 50 years of learning. You can't do, undo in like a year. You can't undo in like a one, one week. Um, but you have to do it with compassion. You have to do it with empathy. Uh, you have to do it with patience. Um, and, you know, you have to do it in a way that invites someone in rather than makes them feel pushed out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the word together in there and, and the idea of togetherness and something I do want to come on to is some of your initiatives um, that you have put in place and the most recent one where you've trained up uh, four individuals you know to go into different localities to deliver training and deliver support it was amazing one of the one of the um, older ones that um, I, I came across which I thought was brilliant was the uh, mixed grill initiative in in Birmingham I think you implemented that I just want to talk to you a little bit about that because that ultimately uh for me is the idea of togetherness and bringing people together and like we touched on earlier is creating connections and letting those connections play out those conversations right so talk to me a little bit about that and how that came together and how you've seen perhaps why you implemented that and how you've then seen it come off absolutely so mixing chill is for me a really important part of our work because fundamentally it recognizes that not everyone in our communities will be on our social media connecting with us day in and day out. And it recognizes that there are absolutely folks in our communities who might not know about Turkey. They might not know about the resources that are available. They might not have those conversations around mental health. And what's really easy is in that position, someone could say to us at Turkey, they could say, but you're not able, you know, are you getting this person involved? Why don't these people know about you? And what you get often is services will say, oh, they're hard to reach. Oh, they're difficult to engage. You know, oh, we've tried, but, you know, they just don't, they just don't come. They just don't engage. And so we try not to do that at Turkey. We don't want to mischaracterize or badly characterize people within our communities because we know that no one is hard to reach. Often what you have is that people are rarely heard as opposed to, as opposed to hard, hard to reach. And so that's always in our minds. And always I'm thinking of groups within Punjabi communities who we need to do better work with because that gives us an idea of the alliances, the collaborations we need to make happen and helps us to position ourselves strategically to be able to work with true depth with our communities as well. So Mixing Chill, that came about because I had a phone call from a friend who owns um, the Soho Tavern Group. And he said to me, he said, look, this is after a suicide um, of a young uh, Punjabi Sikh man um, in, in, in the UK. And he said to me, look, this has happened. Can we do some kind of event or something around this? And I said to him, yeah, look, um, it was it was kind of November, December time. I said, look, have a think, get back to me in January and then let's pick things up. And the reason I say to people, get, get back to me in a few weeks is because sometimes people will get in contact with us when there's a fleeting thought of an idea. And usually I just say to them, sit on it for a few weeks and then get back to me if you're really interested. And he got back to me and he said to me, look, let's let's put something together. And so I said, all right, you're serious about this. 
let's sit down. So I brought um, a friend who works in public health and three of us sat down in Soho Tavern in Hansworth and we were thinking about what we could do. And I said to him, I was like, look, there's no point doing an event because an event is high resource in terms of setting up and running and potentially low impact and also very low sustainability because it kind of like, you know, if you've got a two hour event, it kind of just stops at the end. And so I said, let's think about something a bit more innovative. And, you know, behind one of us, there was a big sign that said Mixie and Chill. And I was like, okay, all right, this is this is interesting. Um, and someone, um, the, the the public health chap, Ricky, he, he said, why don't we do some kind of, you know, why don't we do a bit of a, an initiative that will connect people with resources or, or connect people to the help they need? I was like, okay. All right. And, you know, we kind of talked together and essentially what was born was the Mixie and Chill movement. And so the Mixie and Chill movement is ultimately a way that, you know, Desi pubs, bars, grills can become more responsive to the well-being of their customers. And what we've done um, with Soho Tavern Group is we've kind of done, you know, we've we've tested and we've evolved this over over the last year uh, and developed a bit of a a bit of a process where we kind of take these venues through a few different tiers of engagement. So we have like uh, tier one which is where we provide them with a QR code that they put on their menus that takes people to wellbeing resources. And so, you know, everyone's scanning things to use uh, to kind of order food at restaurants anyway. And so we thought, actually, let's put a QR code on the menu. Let's put next to it the Mixy and Chill community. Um, and then let's, let's see what happens. And let's put some resources on there, community-based resources, healthcare resources, um, things that people can click on if they want to. Yeah, over the last year, you've had over 2,000 people who have scanned that QR code and accessed those resources. And you can see, because of the because of the application, you can see what people have been clicking on and you can see what's been clicked on more. So we're at that point where that's working and that's moving really nicely. And what we're organizing at the moment is now to kind of go and put some more, slightly more subtle um, kind of messaging in, in the um in the pub as well so you know whether it's little posters by urinals whether it is kind of posters um in in different parts of the of the pub again very subtle it just talks about the mixy and chill movement and it's got a qr code there nothing about mental health nothing about seeking help or support um just something kind of nice and kind of subtle as well and then you know we'll be able to measure how that changes things you know are people scanning more you know are people kind of accessing more and all that type of thing um, and then the third step we're working on is actually developing and delivering training for the staff. Um, so staff can receive training and um, can have conversations more confidently uh, around mental health and use the QR code as a resource. And so ultimately, you know, we want to have that kind of tier system. We want to have that package. We can work with these venues to implement. Um, and then, you know, we can kind of, once we've got one for one place, we can work with another place and we can kind of scale it that way. So we're, we've got a team of four people including myself, we've got a team of four people who are currently working on Mixie and Chill um, and to kind of get things going. That's amazing. That, that really is amazing. And I think it's a, such a great initiative and such a great idea. That was my conversation with Sharanjit Singh, founder of Drogki. If you enjoyed the conversation, please leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you are subscribed to and or following this podcast. The Instagram page is also available to keep up to date with any new and additional content. 
Search for London Writing Guy on Instagram and or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, thank you for listening. Thank you.